Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 18 A Passionate Suspicion. In the days following the Yule Ball, as classes started up again, Hermione had questions. Like, who was Rita Skeeter? She's a journalist for the Daily Prophet, Draco told her on the way out from Transfiguration. And a biographer, added Neville. I haven't read most of them, but I like the book that she wrote on Rubeus Hagrid. Of course you did, said Draco. Like you didn't? Of course I did, nibbed at Draco. What book is this? Hermione asked. She dimly recalled the name Hagrid from one, or maybe a few of her books, but she didn't think he had been much more than a footnote in any of them. Something-something Hagrid, something-riddle, some bit player in a wizen gambit inquiry, she was pretty sure. It's supposed to be about the life of Rebes Hagrid, but uh, there are some exaggerations, Neville offered. It's Codswallop, you mean, Draco said jovially. They've got a copy in the library I can show you, Neville said. Do you want to go after lunch? he asked, and Hermione, of course, very much did want to go. She had half a mind to go after it right now, in fact, but she was going to have to eat at some point, so Hermione went down to Hogsmeade for a quick bite at Madame Puddyfoot's. After lunch, all three of them were free for the afternoon, so Hermione followed Neville and Draco into the Hogwarts library. You said that it's all untrue, but that you like it anyway, Hermione said. I don't really understand. That's probably an overstatement, Neville said. That it's all untrue, that is. I mean, there's this part where Skeeter implies that Hagrid was a British spy during the Carpathian conflict, but she doesn't actually come out and say so. Her description of Hagrid's suitcase is definitely exaggerated, though. What does she say about his suitcase? asked Hermione. Oh, that it's gargantuan, you know, Draco said, with a whole forest inside and beasts and things. But it's fun, anyway, Neville insisted as he checked the shelves. There's this part where Hagrid is bitten by an acromantula, but the fang went through his hand, so he just keeps it there until he's milked all its venom. Even if that isn't true, it's fun to read about. The Blaze went to a double signing once, Skeeter and Hagrid together, and said you could see the scar on both sides of his end. Do acromantula bites really leave incurable scars? asked Hermione. She'd never heard of that, but there was much she hadn't heard of, and acromantulas weren't exactly a common sight in Europe. Maybe. Neville said, shrugging. Or maybe he poked himself with a cursed stick or something. They would think that would make a better story, actually. Maybe he just never got it fixed. Anyway, here we go, Neville said, pulling out a book, and he presented Hermione with, You got to stroke him. The Rebeus Agrid story. On the cover, a bulky, bearded man walked down a stairway that never ended. Perched on one arm was a surprisingly small Irish phoenix, which he was gently stroking with his other hand. Hermione didn't know that they came in miniature versions, but it definitely looked full-grown. Perhaps somebody had cast a shrinking charm upon the bird. "'There's a stage adaptation, too,' Draco said. "'They'd run it at the Diagonal Theatre, and Dora performed in it a couple of times. The script is actually kind of terrible, but it's still a great experience.' "'That's starting to feel like a theme,' Hermione mused. "'It's terrible, but here's a good thing about it. "'It's very interesting, the way that they did the play.' They have real beasts playing most of the parts, Draco continued animatedly. 
There are some trolls in bit parts, since we don't have any giants in Britain. A real dragon, too, though it's a lot younger than the dragon it's supposed to portray, of course. And they have it under a lot of extinguishing charms, so the fire is all bluebell flames from its handler. Hermione flipped to the back of the book, less interested in the subject matter than in its author. On one of the final pages was a photograph of the same heavily built man on its cover, shaking hands with a tiny, garishly dressed woman less than half his size. For a moment Hermione wondered whether Skeeter had some goblin blood in her, and then she took note of the room around them, the chairs and table, the door in the background. Skeeter wasn't small, and neither was that Irish phoenix. Hagrid was massive, an absolute mountain of a man, a rampart. "'He's so tall,' Hermione said, wondering how tall he was exactly, and how he might match up against Madame Maxime. Without knowing Skeeter's height or exactly how big those chairs were, there was no way to tell. "'He's a half-giant,' Draco said, but Hermione only halfway heard it. She was reading Hagrid's biographical summary at the end of the book, and had just read the words, "'After Azkaban.' She went a few sentences back, sure she had missed something, but Azkaban seemed to spring from nowhere. "'Hagrid's talents made him highly sought after in the DRCMC, and he spent time in a variety of task forces, among them the Dragon Research and Restraint Bureau,' the Troll Patrol, and even the Centaur Liaison Office. After Azkaban, Hagrid became... No, it still didn't make any more sense the second time around. What's this about Azkaban? Hermione said, pointing at the line in question. Oh, right. Neville read the passage aloud, speaking softly to himself. That makes sense. Skeeter mostly skips over it in the book, too. It's a pity, but I guess it makes sense when you remember that Skeeter went there, too. I doubt either of them really wanted to think much more about it. Rita Skeeter went to Azkaban? Hermione asked, and then, after Draco and Neville both nodded, Why? Not sure, Neville said. It was a long time ago, wasn't it? I mean, it was around the time of the reorganization. Draco didn't know much about it either, so Hermione resorted to back issues of the Daily Prophet for a second time. Her efforts were more productive on this occasion, and it only took a couple of hours before she could begin to put together the story of Skeeter's head-first fall from Grace, and her unexpected salvation from the jaws of Azkaban. Skeeter had made her name in the wake of the Second Fire of London, literarily eviscerating parties on every side of the issue and rising in popularity with every furious word. Rita Skeeter was a household name, apparently given carte blanche to harry the living and desecrate the dead, so long as she entertained the masses. When Dumbledore died and the Wizengamot was reorganized, rumors spread that she was preparing a book, a tell-all story about Tom Riddle. And then they sent her to Azkaban. Or rather, first they put her on trial for disseminating state secrets, and then they sent her to Azkaban. All through the trial, Riddle actually supported Skeeter, speaking in her defense and writing editorials in The Prophet. Riddle said that she was a good friend of his, that she was a mostly honest reporter and faithful to the people of Britain. Skeeter was exonerated in the end, but not before she spent several months in Azkaban. She left around the time of the General Amnesty, which saw the release of a number of other prisoners as well, including Rubeus Hagrid. Not long after, Skeeter wrote, "'You gotta stroke him,' and Hagrid was rehabilitated in the eyes of the public. He was no longer just some nitwit who was in some obscure way responsible for the second fire of London, but a remarkably eloquent part-giant with a shining ministerial record who had been scapegoated by a corrupt government for no other reason than that he was tangentially related to the affair and he wasn't fully human.' 
He even started a radio show, Wiedershins with Agrid. Following the success of her first book, Skeeter was invited to a series of private interviews with Riddle, further evidence of his professed friendship and faith in her abilities. The product of those interviews, Young Riddle, was regarded as a puff piece by the Prophet's own review columnist, Lysandra Lockhart, and Hermione had thought the same when she read it a few months ago, and yet every other book she'd read had either skipped Riddle's early years prior to his entry in the political arena, or used Young Riddle as their main source for stories about his travels around the world or his life before Hogwarts. And from there, Skeeter continued to pen more articles, more books, more columns, lionizing people like Crispin Hawkworth and Cornelius Fudge, and tearing down others like Millicent Bagnold and Bartimius Crouch, the Elder. Now it seemed that she was working the international angle. Only last month she had taken Senator Blogana's presence at the Triwizard Tournament as an opportunity to criticize her country's disenfranchisement of the Brudnokvisci, who could trace their magical lineage no further than the 17th century. Hermione wasn't actually sure about the nature of the discrimination. It didn't seem as though the issue was muggle heritage, per se, since among the privileged Urbuff there was somebody named Pan Sispiswava, whose grandmother was a muggle, but it wasn't clear whether Skeeter knew what was going on either. Rita Skeeter wasn't the only puzzle on her mind. Some nights Hermione looked at her orb more than she looked at her textbooks, or so it felt. Specialis Revelio, she cast tapping her wand against the orb for what had to have been the hundredth time since she had vomited it out. Nothing happened, just like nothing had happened on the ninety-nine other occasions that she had used the enchantment-revealing charm. It wasn't intended to reveal magic whose nature had been concealed, so there was nothing but the feeble hope that the passage of time might decay some vital element thereof, and that she would perceive the barest flicker of something." After extensive testing, Hermione and the others had been able to confirm that their tournament orbs were enchanted, but the nature of those enchantments was still hard to discern. The most exacting way to identify an enchantment was to run a critical test sequence. This was time-consuming and a little exhausting, because it required an array of potions, but the process was all but foolproof if done correctly. When exposed to inspection in tincture number seven, for example, an object that had been enchanted with a certain group of animation charms, mostly considered jinxes, but not all of them, would turn the solution dark gray, while most other kinds of enchantments would turn it yellow. If the potion didn't change color at all, then either the object wasn't enchanted at all, or something was preventing a reaction, which could hopefully be determined by other tests. Maddeningly, the orbs didn't produce consistent results. A complex of interacting enchantments might have had that kind of effect, but would itself have been identifiable by other methods, which predictably failed to suggest that such a complex existed. It was Victor who finally returned with some actionable news. The orbs are not made with wizarding magic, at least not entirely, he said at the next meeting. It is goblin magic also that made them. How did you figure that out? asked Hermione. Much work, Victor replied with a sigh. From his bag he withdrew a fine leather pouch and poured out its contents on the table, his orb, several flat pebbles with different etchings, amethyst and garnet cubes, a gold ring, and a galleon. "'There is a method of determining enchantments by similarity. If you are being patient, and if you have clear sight, perhaps, if you are sensitive, you keep the first item by one hand and put the other into a bag.' 
Then, when you get urged to do so, you close that hand and pull it out, and you should be holding the similar item. It is best to try several times to make sure you are correct, but some people are rarely wrong even on the first try. Claromancy, Hermione said. If you say so, at Durmstrang it is called Runadrater. I did not know that you studied divination, Fleur said, regarding Victor curiously. I have not even a little talent for divination. This took me six hours, and I had thought to take longer, Victor admitted. Probably I would have accomplished nothing if the orb were not so unlike the other things, all but the galleon. I suppose that could explain why other methods weren't working, Hermione said. At least I hope that's the case. I don't want to discover that we're taking another false route. There is also the sword of Gryffindor in the castle, Victor said. I can try to compare that to the galleon and to our orbs. This cannot do more than prove basic similarity, however. Even if in great wonder my orb has the same enchantments as the sword of Gryffindor, I probably cannot prove it. I am not nearly so good at saying truly. A soothsaying. Hermione corrected, but she spoke a little absently. Most of her brain was consumed by the problem at hand. I don't know nearly enough about divination, nor enchantments for that matter, to even know where to begin. I can talk with Vicente about one of those, at least. Do you have any ideas, Fleur? Arithmancy may not assist us very much in this matter, but it is worth exploring, Fleur said. I know a little gobbledygook, and the Hogwarts Library should have more information— the most troublesome problem is that I do not know how to convert from one to the other, in the manner that is required for arithmancy. There are tables for doing arithmetic work on English names in French, or doing the opposite, but I know only a few conversions from Cobbledygook, and there's probably much more to discover. There is also much that will not be satisfied by simple conversion, no matter what tables exist. I will need to improvise, it is almost certain, but I do not know how much... Vicente insisted on starting from the basics. This is only a bit of leather, but if I imbued it with an extension charm, then it would contain much more than it ought to, Vicente said. That is the first level of enchantment. Different materials are more or less well suited for enchantment, like how iron is very difficult to enchant, but all else being equal, laying down that enchantment is only a little more complicated than performing the spell itself. "'Right, but we don't need to produce the enchantment,' Hermione said. "'Just understand what's going on with the spell or spells that are already present.' "'And from that first level of enchantment,' Vicenta continued, "'we can speak of additional levels of enchantment according to the number of additional clauses, "'which is what you call the different parts of an enchantment. "'For example, you do not want a portkey to travel immediately upon the time that you enchant it. "'You must include a clause that we call the requisite, "'which defines the circumstances under which the enchantment reveals itself or takes effect. "'Some portkeys must be touched by a living being or even a certain person, "'and others will travel at a specified time.' We refer to this thing, whatever it is that is defined by the requisite, as the rebus. I imagine that the goblin enchantments will, at a broad level, work in a similar fashion. So we have to find the rebus, Vicente nodded. Now, if the judges are really determined to make it difficult for you, then there may be multiple clauses, each one built on top of the other, and you might need to satisfy one requisite before you can try the next. And we'll have to maintain the first while we work on the second, won't we? Hermione said, frowning. "'It is possible,' 
he simply said. And Hermione returns to her room and to the problem of a frustratingly enchanted silver orb. Specialis Revelio, she said for the hundred and first time, and she sighed and cracked open a library-lent copy of Enchanted Diagnostics for the Stupefied. It was going to be a long night. Research projects weren't the only reason for Hermione to stay up late, however. Victor had suggested a midnight excursion for their date, and Hermione acquiesced. There were textbooks to keep her company till that time anyway, and she hadn't actually mentioned to Fleur that she and Victor were, well, not dating. That seemed a little more serious, putting it that way, but going on a date at least. There was supposed to be a curfew, too, but Riddle had said it, and Hermione had a desire to break the rule for that reason alone— on reflection, Riddle's ability to inspire that level of spite in her might have been the most disturbing thing about him. Close to midnight, while she was still studying and just a little tired, there came a gentle tapping at her window. Hermione turned and saw Victor's head, just his head, absent any neck or body. She nearly let out a noise, then scrambled and opened up the window for him. "'What are you doing?' she asked. "'We are going on that date tonight, are we not?' "'Yes, but I—' Hermione took a moment to collect her thoughts and refocus on what was important. "'You were invisible. You are invisible,' she corrected. Victor's head was still the only part of him that could be seen. "'That can't be a disillusionment. I can see some of you. You have an invisibility cloak?' "'Shortly,' Victor said. "'It would be true were it to say Dimitri has an invisibility cloak, which he let me borrow for the sake of our date.' he smiled. The lake ice is beautiful under the moonlight. Would you like to see? There was one problem Hermione could see with that. What about the basilisk? Even if the lake is frozen over, we still might catch a small glimpse of its eyes. That wouldn't kill them, according to what she'd read, but they would still be petrified, and mandrakes weren't in season at this time of year, so Hermione would fall terribly behind in her studies. But we live upon the lake, we who are in the sheep— and you live beside it, and the leg is moreover very large. I do not think that she swims close to your carriage or my ship. We were given no warnings against looking out the window or over the deck at night, so these parts of the lake must be safe. Hermione thought it over for a minute, but she couldn't see a flaw in Victor's logic. All right, let's see the lake, then, she said. And she bundled up with magically warm clothes and clambered out of the carriage window, Victor opened up the invisibility cloak and rewrapped it around the two of them. "'Just until we have gotten a little further from the castle,' Victor said. The Hermione didn't really mind the closeness. Victor's shoulder was warm. "'Do you really think anybody would be out at this hour?' Hermione asked. "'There is little which Headmaster Riddle could do that would surprise me,' Victor said. Even Riddle had to sleep at some point, and Friday nights were as good a time as any, but Victor was right— for all Hermione knew, she hadn't ever actually seen him, not one time, and the real Tom Riddle just stayed up all night and looked out in the grounds from the astronomy tower like some sort of diabolical gargoyle, or maybe he didn't exist at all anymore. He definitely had a dog, though. Hermione knew that much for sure. Maybe Padfoot would be wandering about, even in this cold. We still have a smell under this invisibility cloak, don't we? I believe that is so said Victor quietly. And sounds. Well, they dispelled that jinx when they came to it. As they crunched through the snow together, Hermione leaned closer into Victor's warm side. 
Two layers, even enchanted with a hot air charm, were not quite enough for Scottish winter nights. Did you see how Riddle was feeding grapes to Padfoot all through dinner at the Yule Ball? Victor didn't respond immediately, and the quiet stretched on until Hermione thought he might not have heard her. She was about to repeat her question when Victor said, "'He should not have done that.' They were so close together she could feel his breath ghosting against the top of her head. "'What do you mean?' asked Hermione. "'Dogs cannot eat all of the things that humans can. They make sure that we know this before we arrive at Durmstrang. They tell it to us on the ship.' "'because there are many dogs around the school, "'and uh, they do not know so much what hurts them, "'or they do not care,' Victor said, frowning slightly. "'Dogs can drink milk, but only a little, "'and it is bad for them to eat chocolate, leeks, and other foods. "'And grapes also can make dogs sick. "'But Riddle seems to actually care about Padfoot. "'It is definitely puzzling,' Victor agreed. "'Maybe they weren't really grapes,' Hermione suggested. "'Or they could just be cultured grapes, a simulacra without a nutritive property.' "'It is not impossible,' Victor said. "'Many poisons, even those non-magical, are hard to generate except by alchemical methods. "'I am unsure what makes a grape so dangerous for dogs, "'but perhaps this characteristic cannot be conjured so easily.' or else it is easily removed or left out of the conjuration. Soon they were there at the shore, and Victor was definitely right. The black lake, frozen solid as far as she could see, was like a vast looking-glass for the moon itself. The stars twinkled in the midnight ice as if they were lights glittering from the depths. She and Victor removed the invisibility cloak, doubtful that anyone would be looking for errant students out here, but Hermione stayed near him, shoulder brushing shoulder, for warmth. "'Have you ever skated?' Victor asked. "'No,' said Hermione, who had seen too many wintertime movies that saw fit to build dramatic tension with a near-death fall through the ice. It wasn't the sort of thing that was very likely, even for muggles, but those movies always made her think about what it would be like to sink through the water, cold and getting colder, too cold to move her wand and save herself.' Hermione shivered. Much better to stay on solid ground. Hmm. Victor gazed down over the lake, then looked at Hermione for a moment. It probably is not a good time to teach, then, but have you skipped stones? On the ice? Victor's eyes crinkled with amusement. Duh. Victor, it's ice. You can't go skipping stones with this no... Well, I suppose there's water, technically... "'But it's ice. How is that supposed to—' "'Hermione stopped talking as Victor tossed a conjured disc of stone over the ice. "'It bounced a couple times with soft, echoing cracks, "'then slid with a long, ethereal sigh that reverberated over the lake ice. "'Oh,' she said, almost whispering, "'is that magic?' "'No, it is just ice,' Victor said, chuckling slightly and he taught another conjured stone to the same effect. "'All right, I can see the appeal,' Hermione said, and she conjured her own stone to toss. "'Did you know there used to be mermaids here?' she asked after a few minutes of listening to the ice whisper and sing. "'I did not.' "'They were—' "'I don't know the right word to use here,' 
Hermione said, turning the conjured stone over in her hands. Exiled? Evicted? It all seems so big and not big enough at the same time, and I don't even know how I'm supposed to feel about it. Why not? Because they don't like hags and vampires, or werewolves for that matter. They refused even to be classified as beings, not while there were dark creatures who were also considered beings, and when they learned what was happening at Hogwarts, who and what was being allowed to attend, they just about rioted. And Riddle got rid of them. Hermione threw the stone. She was silent for a couple seconds, long enough for the stone to skip and skip and begin to slide. Ice song reverberating off the dark trees, then spoke again. It feels wrong, but... Hermione fell silent, and Victor, Morgana bless him, waited in the silence for her to gather her thoughts. "'I don't like them, either,' she finally whispered. Her voice was so hushed that she could hardly hear it herself, but Victor nodded anyway. "'They aren't like house elves or goblins or uh, velas,' Hermione said. "'But I don't like that I don't like them.' Fleur doesn't see what I see. From the very beginning, when that vampire girl was sorted, well, that's it, isn't it? I saw a vampire, and Fleur saw a girl. And I want to see them in the way that she sees them. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense, Victor said softly. So I can sort of understand where they're coming from, or... Maybe completely understand it, but I can think it's wrong, too, and yet they lost their homes, and... I don't know, Victor, I don't know. It is all right to feel conflicted, Victor said, and he put an arm around her. Hermione wasn't immediately sure how she felt about that, but after a moment decided that it was fine. He was warm and kind and comfortable, and that was nice. On their way back, Victor slipped his hand into hers, and she smiled, feeling a little foolish, feeling a little lighter on her feet, even with the weight of the invisibility cloak on both their shoulders. But then he asked Hermione whether she would like to go out again sometime, and uh, though her first instinct was yes, her second thought was less sure. Or rather, she wasn't sure that she ought to. There was an awful lot of work they all needed to do, especially her, and that work loomed rather more fiercely now in the chilly moonlight than it had amid the exhilaration of the Yule Ball. Having two, and very pointedly failing to mention them to Fleur, felt a bit too much like keeping a secret in any event than it would be dating, wouldn't it? She wasn't sure what that meant, wasn't sure. I'd like to think about it. Hermione said, and Victor nodded and asked no more about it. There wasn't much time for thinking about dates, however, on account of all that studying, despite Professor Fayo's assurance that Hermione would have a place in next year's alchemy class, she remained determined to stay on top of her studies. It was dense reading, but at least the material remained almost entirely theoretical, at Hogwarts, the professors actually held off on teaching it until sixth year, 
but it seemed that there were bits and pieces of the foundational matter in the main potions curriculum, so perhaps that wasn't too unreasonable. Fleur saw things differently, though, and one afternoon she decided to do something about it. "'You have too many books,' she declared, while Hermione cried sacrilege. "'If I stack these from me, Fleur, it will be taller than you are,' she said, as if that meant anything. "'There is no limit to how many books you can borrow at one time,' Hermione insisted. "'There should be,' Fleur said, and she plucked enchanted diagnostics from its place on Hermione's desk and opened it. "'Now come outside with me for a little while, just so that you remember what daylight feels like, or I will fold over the corner of this book,' she said, with one finger poised threateningly over its vulnerable pages. "'You wouldn't,' Hermione said, almost hissing. "'I would?' "'But the library rules forbid it.' Riddle's dictates were one thing, but the rules laid down by Madame Pince were as commandments to Hermione. "'I do not think I agreed to any such rules,' Fleur said, and Hermione, groaning, admitted defeat and permitted herself to be led away from her studies. Of course, it actually was rather nice out, even accounting for the cold. The Black Lake wasn't quite as beautiful in the daytime, but Fleur was more interested in walking at the edge of the Forbidden Forest— whose interplay of black trees and white snow was beautiful in its own right. It would have been convenient to have the company of an herbologist, Hermione thought. She didn't know all that much about trees beyond the broad categories that most of them fell into. Certainly she didn't know the first thing about Scottish trees. But what did that matter? It was a beautiful day outside. The crows were cawing amiably. The snow was falling gently, and everybody agreed that a spot of exercise was good for the brain— so really this was actually crucial to her studies, when Hermione thought about it like that. It was nice to just have a quiet walk with Fleur, for that matter. It felt like it had been so long since they'd slowed down and had just some time together. Then they came to a trail of footprints in the snow, ending abruptly several feet from the trees, as though a great eagle had swooped down and snatched away a Hogwarts student for its supper— it was obviously the product of an obliteration charm, eliminating all the footprints on the way back, but if their intention had been to make it look as though somebody had walked into the Forbidden Forest, Hermione wasn't sure why they would have stopped several feet short of the trees. It hardly mattered, and Hermione probably would have forgotten it entirely had she and Fleur not taken the same path again on their way back. Now the trail had been completed, and more than completed— it had been extended into the Forbidden Forest itself. Somebody was actually there, Hermione realized, just standing there, invisible, waiting for us to— Fleur, what are you doing? she asked, as Fleur began to enter the forest. I want to find out what he's doing here, Fleur said. But the Forbidden Forest is forbidden. It's right there in the name, Fleur. saint This wasn't a riddle rule. It wasn't even a library rule— it had been the Forbidden Forest for centuries, according to Hogwarts history. Fleur Albert rolled her eyes. That did not stop the maker of these footprints. Now you may stay out here if you like, but I intend to follow him, she said. And she slowly melted from view beneath the influence of a disillusionment charm, gone except for a shimmer in the air. She didn't want to enter the Forbidden Forest, but she wanted even less to leave Fleur to brave it alone. What if Fleur ran into trouble and needed assistance? "'Right,' Hermione said reluctantly, and she promptly felt something like egg yolk wash over her body as a disillusionment charm took effect. Their quarry, Fleur's quarry, really, was a little hard to follow in all the brush. In fact, they were impossible to see at all, 
but there were footprints in the snow, where they hadn't been obscured by magic, and Fleur and Hermione were able to pick up other traces with some careful spell work. The trail was almost lost a couple of times, and Hermione wondered why Fleur was so determined to find them, but all Fleur said was, "'I am curious. Now be quiet, Slacken, here.' Eventually they reached the end of the footprints, which led directly to a tree— Unless their target had climbed it, there probably was an obliteration charm at work here. Fleur waited a moment, then cast an incarcerating jinx to her left, whereupon the ropes wrapped tight around a patch of air that fell to the ground with a gasp and a grunt. "'You should not make so much noise,' Fleur said, though Hermione herself had heard nothing but the sounds of the forest. "'Good afternoon to you, mademoiselles,' said the air, which spoke with a familiar voice. "'If all is being the same to you, maybe let me sit,' it asked. And Hermione pulled down the cloak from Dimitri's head and unbound the ropes. Fleur said nothing, and it was finally Hermione who asked, "'What are you doing here?' "'I am scouting for mushrooms, of course,' Dimitri said cheerfully. Hermione looked from side to side. The forest was largely bare, save for snow, sticks, more snow, and hibernating trees— "'I don't think that mushrooms grow in winter.' "'Do not think, but perhaps you are wrong. "'If I believe you now, then look it up and find out that mushrooms really don't grow in winter, "'then I'm going to be very frustrated with you,' Hermione said with a bit of a huff. "'Early bird is uh, catching worm. "'Dimitri, really, what are you doing out here?' "'Hermione glanced at Fleur, but the other girl seemed willing to let Hermione direct the conversation. "'Fleur hardly seemed to even be paying attention.' the way that she was looking around in just about every direction but Dimitri's. Uh, that is hard to be saying, but I suppose I can... There is, how do you say, uh, yes, people from the um, British Ministry, yes, coming through here. Hermione had noticed some of that as well. She didn't pay all that much attention to the Forbidden Forest. It was forbidden, after all, and she had heard all manner of tales to justify that, so there was no point to thinking about the place but she had noticed a few comings and goings on her way to classes or Hogsmeade. "'Do you think that the second task is going to be an obstacle course, then?' she asked. "'This would be just the sort of place for that, and for our manner of beasts as well.' Dimitri shook his head. "'I am not thinking the second task will be here.' "'The third, then?' asked Hermione, and Dimitri nodded. "'But the third task won't be until June.' "'It is a, what do you call it, a hunch?' Dimitri said." and he shrugged. Were there maps of the Forbidden Forest? There had to be. But perhaps those maps were classified, or at least beyond the reach of schoolchildren. It would hardly do to hand out tour guides to the very much not permitted forest at the entrance of the Hogwarts Library, but whatever information there was, collecting it all would be good. Even rumors might be useful. "'Have you been taking trips through the forest very often?' she asked. "'This is my times threes, Dimitri said. Hermione wasn't completely sure what he meant by that, but she decided to move on, and extended a hand to help Dimitri to his feet. She looked at Fleur, who continued to give an appearance of disinterest. "'Let's head back,' Hermione said. "'You have a very nice invisibility cloak. I had no idea you were there, even when I knew where to look. It was nothing like a disillusionment charm. Is your cloak woven from demigai's hair?' "'I am not sure. It is my uncle's.' Behind them, Fleur was still looking around, as if there was something more to see than just the trees. 
For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltiside. The music is Amon Ra by Dayswitch under a Creative Commons license with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, Thank you for listening.